in your Bible to the book of Philippians. We're going to be continuing our, this little sermon series that we've been doing on Sunday nights called The Big Four, The Big Four. And, um, and we've been looking at, uh, we've been looking at um, different verses uh, for last year on the Version Bible app, different version, uh, uh, verses that um, were the most shared, the most bookmarked uh, verses uh, in uh, off of their app. Uh, and it's been a little bit surprising what the, you know, which verses it has been. Some of them are a little bit more well-known than others, but I think you'll find this one tonight. You're very familiar with it. I've seen it on keychains. I've seen it on bumper stickers. I've seen it on coffee mugs. I've seen it on cell phone cases, and I've seen football players uh, have it on, on their face. I've seen people have it tattooed on their bodies. Um, it, it, this is the most shared verse in 2017. Hundreds and thousands of shares and bookmarks and likes. And I'm afraid, though, that one of the reasons why this verse is so popular might be for all the wrong reasons. That people don't really understand what this verse is saying. It's misunderstood. It's misapplied. It's probably one of the most misapplied Bible verses in all of Scripture. Uh, and the reason why I think that it is so popular to begin with is because it's one of the classic, easiest, name it and claim it Bible verses you'll ever come across. It's the kind of verse that makes you want to go to the gym, lift weights, run a marathon, play the lottery. I don't know. Uh, many of you probably have figured out what the verse is. But before we reveal our verse tonight, let's just do this, help wake you up. Can I get a drum roll for our number one shared Bible verse? Last drum roll. Thank you in the back. Let's hit it. What's the number one verse, guys? You know what it is. Say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including doing a drum roll in church. You can easily see why this verse is so quoted, why it's so popular, why people love it so much, right? Because isolated from anything and everything else, this verse says nothing is impossible. There's no obstacle too great, nothing uh, insurmountable. You can do anything uh, through Christ. You can just do anything. And there's a couple of problems, right? Well, you can do anything through Christ who strengthens you. There's a couple of problems with applying that verse that way. Uh, the first one is, that's just not how Paul meant it. And that's just what you're going to run up against. He's not claiming that if you love Jesus, that makes you a superman. That you can leap tall buildings in a single bound, dunk a basketball when you're 90, and walk on water when your fishing boat sinks. That's not what it means. Uh, this verse is not saying that um, that there's nothing in life that's impossible. That's not what this verse is saying. There are a few things that are clearly impossible. I mean, they just are, unless God does the miraculous. You, know, you ever tried to dribble a football? Tennessee did Saturday, amen. That boy took that ball and scored a touchdown. Right? How hard is it to get bubble gum out of your hair? I don't know. It seems like it'd be just about impossible. You ever tried to barbecue pancakes? I don't I think that'd be impossible. You ever try to pick a bald-headed man up out of the water by his head? Impossible. Right? Slam a revolving door? It's impossible. To be a Florida Gators fan and be right with God? Impossible. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Now, if this verse doesn't mean that I can do anything I want to, 
then what does it mean? I wonder, as we look at this, look at this next slide. I want you to remember this when it comes to any Bible verse. Any text without context is a pretext. Any text that's taken out of context is simply a pretext, and you're going to lose the true meaning. When we put this verse in its proper context, it doesn't lose any of the spiritual power behind it or any of the meaning about what God means. Matter of fact, I think it becomes even better. I think it gains tremendous power, and it deserves to be one of the most shared Bible verses uh, of 2017. Now, let's get some context. The book of Philippians was written by a man named Paul. Paul was writing to a church in Philippi around 13 AD. And um, this church was in Greece. And it was in the region in Greece of Macedonia. And it was the very first church that Paul had ever planted there. And this church was really faithful in a very short period of time. It grew in an incredible amount. And one of the things that this church would do is Paul continued to travel and plant churches. This church in Philippi would uh, financially help Paul on his missionary journey. They were so grateful for what God did there among them. They wanted God to do the same thing in other places. And they would help Paul. They would support him in these other cities. And, And that's what Paul is referring to. Look at verse number 10. Go back to verse 10 in your Bible. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10. He said, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. He's talking about that support that they would give him. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity, right? This is a sweet church that was always sensitive to the needs of Paul. And they'd always been kind of a lifeline to Paul and supported him in his ministry. Now, when Paul writes this letter, when Paul writes this letter, he is under house arrest. Okay, he is uh, awaiting trial. Things aren't going good for him. He's not even sure how long he's going to live. That's where Paul is. And so Paul definitely isn't saying that I can do anything that I want to. Because if he wanted to, he'd fly, fly, fly far away from there. Does that make sense? Right? He's in chains. He'd walk out, free himself. But then when you read the next two verses, our, our main verse tonight becomes very clear. Look at Philippians 4 verse 11. It says, not that I speak in regard to need, about what I need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. What Paul is saying here, he's learned a secret of satisfaction. And ultimately, that's what this, these verses, this section of Scripture is talking about. It's talking about being satisfied in Christ. Paul is not writing to the church at Philippi to tell them how to get out of something or to, uh, to overcome insurmountable odds. Uh, there are literally, I mean, think about uh, what he is saying. He's saying, I have learned the secret to, be, to being satisfied. And that's, that goes hand in hand with what we talked about this morning, our message this morning. Many people aren't satisfied. There's a lot of marriages that are falling apart because somebody's dissatisfied. There are many millions of people going in millions of dollars of credit card debt because they're not satisfied. Uh, uh, Paul had learned two words that unlock the secret to being truly satisfied. And those two words are found in verse 13. Look at this, Philippians 4, 13, through Christ. How do we find satisfaction? How are we really satisfied in life? We can only do that through Christ. Philippians 4.13 is not necessarily about your ability to succeed, to soar higher, to break through any barrier, to finish a race or win a football game. It's about realizing that the only real source of satisfaction in this life is Christ Jesus. 
That's what these verses are really about. And you need to, when you understand who Jesus is and what he's done and where you are in Christ, you'll be satisfied. Most often our dissatisfaction comes when we forget those things. Here's our key, write this down. Here's our key thought for tonight. I should be the most satisfied when Jesus is most glorified in me. When should I be the most satisfied? When Jesus is the most glorified. And so in this tremendous passage, this amazing section of scripture, we're going to glean three tremendous lessons that help us to unlock the secret to actually being satisfied. Number one, write this down. I want you to know that satisfaction is something that you can learn. Praise God. Right? And I think it's a lesson that we have to relearn. Right? We're satisfied and we're happy. And then what we talk about this morning, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And often we begin investing treasure and our heart starts drifting to the things of the world. Then we have to relearn the lesson of satisfaction. Look at verse number 11, Philippians 4, verse 11. It says, not, Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And that's kind of interesting. Paul says that the secret to satisfaction is absolutely something that you can learn. Contentment is an acquired skill. Discontentment comes natural. We're all born dissatisfied, every single one of us. We've only had two babies, but two out of two babies came out of the womb complaining. Amen? I mean, think about it. Think about it, right? That baby's totally happy in that warm womb of them. It's dark. It's cozy right? You can sleep all you want. You're getting all the food that you want. You are happy. And then they yank you out of there and put you in this bright, cold, loud place. And what's the first thing that a baby's going to do? Cry. Amen. Going to let everybody know how dissatisfied they are. Listen, one of the reasons you go, that you go through life and that God allows you to go through ups and downs, good times, bad times, having a whole bunch and having just a little, is to teach you the secret of being content. Like Paul, you can learn it to be totally satisfied in any situation. Um, what is this? There was a very successful uh, businessman, and uh, he decided to take a break from the hustle and bustle. So he went off to some monastery where you could like, go be a monk for the weekend and kind of get secluded and alone. And the monk took him to this little cell with this little simple bed with a simple sink. And that's all that was in the room. And the monk says, I hope your stay is blessed. If you need anything, let us know. And we will teach you to live without it. I don't know how many of you guys can relate. You know, me and Alicia got married. We didn't have nothing. I mean, not nothing. Nothing. I mean, we had less than none. I don't even think our, I'm pretty sure our couch didn't even have legs on it. Amen. <laughs> and we moved into this. Uh, did your couch have legs when you got married? Y'all are rich. Uh, listen, the legless couches are a lot cheaper. They're basically giving them away, folks. But listen to me. And we moved to this little duplex, and it was like one of those shotgun duplexes. You know, you could stand at the front door and shoot a gun and hit the back wall. You know what I'm talking about? Like this little place. And we didn't have, Alicia was in college. She was a college student. Uh, she was working in a pharmacy, and uh, we didn't have any babies yet. Uh, and I was working in the machine shop. I was the lowest paid guy there. Can you imagine that? I was the lowest paid guy there. But I think that we would probably both tell you that during that time where we didn't have nothing, nothing, were some of, probably some of the most happiest, 
contented days of our life, right? We didn't have a lot in terms of material things, but I think whenever we think about it, those were the good old days. Things were a lot simpler. I mean, we were really happy then, right, Alicia? <laughs> she said, no, no, baby, we was broke. I was not happy, right? I mean, we got happy. The babies come along and increase that happiness and all those things. But when I look back, some of the times in our life when we had the absolutely, the best Christmas we ever had, we didn't have no money. And we still, in my family, we still refer, that, refer to that the best Christmas ever. We didn't have a dime. I was only working four days a week, had to take an extra week off at Christmas uh, without pay. When coming back from Christmas, probably going to get laid off. I didn't. God bless. Right? We didn't have nothing. And it was the best Christmas we ever had. It's, listen, it's not in when we have a bunch that we get perspective. It's when we have little. There's this man. His name was Will. He owned a farm in Minnesota. And, and uh, you imagine Minnesota in the winter. And there was this knock on the door. And there was a surveyor. And the surveyor said to the man, he said, uh, uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Will, I got some news for you. And he said, well, what is it? And the surveyor said, well, we've been uh, surveying the state lines and we've discovered that your farm actually isn't in Minnesota. Your farm is actually in Wisconsin. And all of a sudden that farmer got so, he's like, yes, this is awesome. This is the best news I've had for 20 years. I'm so, and the guy's like, why are you so happy about that? He said, I just told my wife this morning, I don't think I could take one more winter in Minnesota. <laughs> you can learn to be satisfied in any situation through Christ who strengthens you. If you don't learn how to be totally satisfied where you are today with what you have today, you'll never be satisfied. Never. You'll never be satisfied where you go or what you have. I'm, I've got to put this in my notes so I can share it with you. This um, thing, this little, I don't, I don't want to call it a poem, but this little essay written by this 14-year-old young man, and it's called Present Tense. You might have heard it before. It goes like this. He said, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter that I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but I wanted to be an adult, freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 that I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. If you're not satisfied with what you have, where you, at, uh, where you are, and who you're with now, the chances are pretty good. Unless God does a work in your life, you'll never realize what it means to be truly satisfied. Look at this next slide. The reason that we are never satisfied with the next thing is because we're not satisfied with the present thing. It's kind of, you know, we're a little bit, I'm not comparing us to my dog, but okay, I guess I am. Miracle, English setter, she's white, she's pretty. Anybody got dogs? Raise your hand, dogs. Yeah, our dog is way prettier than yours. And so, I just thought you should know. <clears throat> anyway, Miracle, <laughs> I mean, especially yours. I'm just, I don't even know. Who raised their hand over here? Yeah, 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 way prettier. Yeah, that's terrible. Uh, but listen, 
I'm kidding. Our dog, does your dog ever beg for food? You ever kind of cave and give that dog a piece of bacon? Because every, every one of God's creation deserves bacon, even pigs. Amen? Amen? <laughs> and so you give her that little piece of bacon. Let me ask you a question. How long is she satisfied with that little piece of bacon? Boom, she gulps it down. She's ready for more. Boom, she's ready for some more. You don't have enough bacon for this dog to get satisfied. Listen, there's not enough of this world to satisfy the human heart apart from Christ Jesus. Amen? If you're not satisfied now, and unless God does a work in your heart, you'll never find satisfaction. There was a man who he was unhappy with his farm, and he decided he finally wanted a bigger farm, a better farm, and he's going to put it up for sale, put it on the market. So he hired a real estate agent. The real estate agent came and checked everything out and was going to run some ads for him and drew up a description for the online description and everything. And he went to the man that owned the farm and said, uh, I want to read this to you, make sure that it's okay that, that we promote the farm like this. Before I go to market, I want you to read this. And the farmer said, all right. And here's what the real estate agent said. Here's what the, the blurb said. It said, beautiful farm for sale. 250 acres of rolling hills, fertile valleys, quiet streams. The climate is, ex is excellent year-round. The land is fertile for any kind of crop. Beautiful two-story house, three barns in excellent condition, situated in a great neighborhood. And the farmer heard that and said, will you read that to me one more time? And the guy read it to him again. And the farmer admittedly said, I've been looking for a place like that all my life. Take it off the market. Listen. Satisfaction is learned. Dissatisfaction will come natural. Number two, write this down. Satisfaction is a life that you can live, man. You can do it. You can be satisfied through Christ. Look at Philippians 4, verse 12. It says, I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. You ever thought of it? Who in here knows how to be broke? Raise your hand. Come on. Some of you don't. God's blessed you and I'm grateful for it. Right? You know how to be, bro. That's what Paul's, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul's not talking theory. Paul's not talking hypothesis. Paul is talking fact. Man, he knows exactly what he's talking about. He lived in uh, situations. He's lived with uh, satisfaction and contentment through situations that would break us down like a double-barrel shotgun. Many of us probably could not handle this without the help of God. Paul had made up his mind to be completely satisfied with who he was, where he was, and with what he had and what he didn't have. And let's be honest, the worst day of your life probably doesn't measure up to one of Paul's average days. Let me just give you a little list. I put it in my notes. He spent almost, almost as much time in prison for Christ as he did outside of it. He had a contract out on his life for him to be killed. Five times he was beaten with a whip and given 39 stripes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. One time he was shipwrecked, he spent a whole night and a whole day in the water. He was rejected by his countrymen, his fellow Jews, and persecuted by the Gentiles that he was trying to reach with the gospel. He was often without food, many times without friends, constantly without finances, chronically without freedom, and consistently without fellowship. Yet Paul said, I have learned the secret 
to satisfaction. Paul never owned a house. He didn't have a car. He maybe had two changes of clothes at the most and only one pair of sandals. He didn't have any degrees on the wall, no medals on his chest, and no wife to comfort him when he was feeling bad. Yet in every situation, he learned to be full, to be hungry, to abound, and to suffer need. He learned what it means to be satisfied in Christ. Whether he was sleeping on silk sheets or burlap sacks, he was content with the life that God had given him. The be- Listen to me if you don't hear anything else. The best teacher for satisfaction is not prosperity. The best teacher of satisfaction is not prosperity. It's adversity. Adversity. In all of nature, there's this principle. I don't know if you've heard this before, uh, the, the adversity principle. The adversity principle. Uh, it simply states that, it's, um, that difficult and hard times is needed in the life of animals and plants for them to truly thrive. They need difficult and hard times. And that's why they do sometimes do these controlled burns in forests. They need it. It's, it's better for animals and, 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 and plants uh, when they have some kind of di- easy living isn't good for them necessarily. Biologists tell us that it's simply not healthy for a plant or an animal to go through life without facing any hardship or difficulty. Think about a rainforest. You ever been in a rainforest? What's a rainforest got a lot of water, right? And the trees in the rainforest, their roots only go a few feet into the ground because they're, they're water prosperous. They're rich of water, so the roots don't have to go very far. And that's why a, just a good windstorm would kick up in the rainforest. It'll knock trees down because their roots don't go very deep. But yet you take that same tree, you put it in a much drier area, and it'll dig those roots down 10, 20, 30, 40 feet into the ground. And some of those trees, the same kind of trees, they can withstand hurricane force winds because in adversity, when they were faced with a situation where they didn't have water and the roots had to go deep to find the water, when the hard times came, when the, the big winds blew, they knew how to withstand. They had the roots, they had the strength to withstand the wind. Adverse conditions. If you just sink your roots into Jesus... You can live a life of satisfaction. And what he'll do, many times he'll use adverse situations in your life, man, and help you to go deeper. You can be content in any location, any situation because of Christ. That's why you can praise God when things are good and praise God when things are bad. Uh, That's why good times don't increase your joy and bad times don't decrease your joy. Your praise is given to God in good and bad. He's always with you. He's always for you. Your joy is found in a Savior that will never leave you and forsake you, man. You can be satisfied in Christ. Your joy is found in a Savior that's never, ever going to leave you. Number three, write this down. And so, ultimately, our satisfaction comes from a Savior you should love. A Savior you should love. Now we understand. Look at verse 13. This is why Paul said this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I could be totally satisfied in jail, in this prison, on this house arrest. I could be satisfied in any location, any situation, because Jesus is strengthening me. That word strengthen, it's... um. In the Greek, it's, it's the same word that we would get for a, a blood transfusion. A blood transfusion. When you become a follower of Jesus, you don't just live for Jesus, do you? He lives in you. In you. Let me tell you what all this comes down to. Look at this next slide. 
You'll never be totally satisfied until your relationship with Jesus is more important than what is going on around you or what is happening to you. You'll never find satisfaction until Jesus is more important than your circumstances, than what's going on around you or even what's happening to you. The things that we make primary in our lives, our circumstances, Paul says those things are secondary. And what's going on around us, man, what did we talk about this morning? That 100-year filter? That is this going to matter in 100 years? Which, before I could even get out of this church this morning, both my kids were like, Dad, is that going to matter in 100 years? And I said, shut up. It's not our circumstances. What is important is who's living in us and who's working through us. You'll never be totally satisfied where you are no matter, how much, no matter where you are without Christ. You'll never be totally satisfied with what you have no matter how much you have without Christ. You'll only be totally, totally satisfied with what you have, where you have, when you have Jesus. Hebrews 13 verse 5, look at it. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said I will never leave you nor forsake you why can you be content because he will never leave you nor forsake you we don't store up treasure on earth we store up treasure in heaven he is our treasure in heaven let your conduct be without covetousness be content with such things as you have for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you you're far better off having God and nothing else than you are in having everything and not having God if you've got everything without Jesus, you've got nothing. And if you've got nothing and you've got Jesus and you've got everything you're ever going to need, if you've got everything you need, you should be satisfied. Jesus Christ came to this planet. Listen, he lived a satisfying life. He went to the cross. He died a satisfying death. He was resurrected. It was a satisfying resurrection. Anything that he commands me to do, that's going to glorify him, I can do. When he empowers me and strengthens me, I can't do everything I want to do, but I can do everything I, can do everything I ought to do that Christ has called me to do. And no matter the situation or the location or the circumstances, I can be satisfied in Christ because he lived that satisfying life. He died that satisfying death, and he rose again, satisfying the law, the justice, the holiness of God for me. And in that, I'm satisfied. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and for your wisdom tonight. Lord, I just pray that we as your people, that we'll find satisfaction in you, me, God, that I'll recognize your value and your worth, and that in you we have everything, more than we could ever imagine, more than we could ever measure more than we could ever count, that we have everything in and through Christ Jesus. Listen, every head bowed, every eye closed, no looking around tonight. Let me just ask you briefly, are you satisfied? What I mean is this, is it possible that the reason why there's no satisfaction in your life is because you don't know the satisfier, Christ Jesus? You've never come to that point in your life where you've surrendered the things of this world. You've been hanging on to what this world has to offer and convincing yourself that you can be good enough to somehow to win on your own what Christ wants to give you freely. You've never come to that point where you've surrendered. You've given up. You've come to Christ with open, empty hands. 
and trusted him as your Lord and Savior to save you for all of eternity. That satisfaction in your heart, that satis- a lack of satisfaction in your heart, in your life, that may be God telling you, you need me, the great satisfier. Listen, that's your prayer right now. Right there in your seat, you know that you need Jesus. Why don't you pray to receive Christ right now? Jesus came and he lived that perfect life. He lived just like us. His feet hurt, his back hurt. He wept, he laughed, just like us. The only difference is he lived without sin. Where we fall short, he never did. Not once, not even close. Then he was condemned by wicked men. And he was put on that cross naked, in shame. King of kings, Lord of lords. And out on the cross, he became sin for us. He took our sin. He took our punishment. The Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve because of our sin is death. And Christ took that on himself. And then on the third day, that tomb was empty. He was resurrected. And he ascended, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for you to die. And he wants to satisfy the deepest longings in your heart. And the only way you can do that tonight is surrender. Do you surrender? Maybe right there in your seat, you just need to pray right now. Just pray a prayer like this. Just humble yourself. Submit yourself to God. And just pray a prayer like this. Say, Father God, I'm a sinner. I sin. Lord, I turn from my sin and I'm turning to Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Tell him, say, Lord, I'm putting my faith in your death, your satisfying death, your satisfying burial and resurrection for my salvation. Save me, Jesus. The Bible is clear that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You just prayed that prayer just now. He gave you a new heart. Gave you the Holy Spirit. He's going to walk with you and talk with you. and You'll never be alone again. I want to encourage you to make that decision public. Maybe you've made that. You've prayed that prayer. You've done business with God before, but you've never made it public. Why don't you come this morning, I mean this evening, and follow through in believer's baptism. It's the first thing that God asks us to do. Maybe you need to come tonight and and be a part of the Grace Baptist family. God is calling you to join this church to let your roots go deep here and serve right here at Grace. What is God calling you to do? Maybe tonight you just need to come to the altar and pray for somebody else that's far from Jesus. Whatever it is, tonight during this invitation, do business with God. Leave here satisfied. Father God, we surrender this invitation to you, Lord. This is your time. God, I just pray that your people will do business with you. God, that they'll do business for their own good and for your glory. We love you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us?